Fritz Haber was a German chemist who, back in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, developed a method of creating ammonia by combining hydrogen and atmospheric nitrogen. And he figured out how to create it by using a metal catalyst, a high temperature, and a large amount of pressure. This was an important discovery because ammonia is a vital component of fertilizer. Ammonia occurs naturally, in small quantities relatively, in decaying animal and vegetable matter, in animal dung, in guano, and when these materials break down, they enrich the soil in which they lay, and that makes that soil more suitable for growing crops. So being able to produce ammonia allows for the production of this soil-enriching chemical that otherwise we can only really create by harvesting bat guano, which is something that many cultures have done throughout history, and by using our fields as outhouses, essentially, which again is something that many cultures have done for a very long time. Or we can also enrich our soil by stealing large quantities of animal skeletons, which sounds like something that I just made up, but this was actually a real concern before we knew how to artificially enrich soil. A village would save up all of their cattle carcasses and bones and grind them up to be mixed in with the soil. And sometimes another village would come over and raid them and steal all of their bones to enrich their own soil instead. History is pretty weird sometimes. But Haber's method allowed us to bypass those cumbersome approaches and get right to the source. It allowed us to produce the chemicals that resulted from all this guano and all of these skeletons. It allowed us to use science to bypass the muck and to be able to stop using our fields anytime we need to go to the bathroom. Haber's process was developed in a lab, which severely restricted its output. But about five years after this process was perfected, a German chemist and engineer named Karl Bosch came along and industrialized it. And he took what worked well in the lab and developed processes and machinery that would allow this catalytic reaction to take place on scale allowing for vast quantities of ammonia to be produced in a relatively short period of time. This process became known as the Haber-Bosch process. Now, this may seem like no big deal. It's just fertilizer, right? And we got along just fine without fancy synthetic fertilizers for most of history. So why all the hubbub about these scientists with their fancy lab ammonia? Well, what's important to understand about this story is that the modern world as we know it has been in large part defined and enabled by this invention. In the year 1900, during which time this process was being developed, the population of the planet was about 1.6 billion people, a staggeringly low number when compared to today's estimated 7.6 billion. That's a big change in a relatively short period of time. And this dramatic increase in population has only been possible because of synthetic fertilizer. Mathematically, using all possible suitable cropland on the planet, it would be unlikely that we could feed 7.6 billion people if we were depending on natural mechanisms for enriching the soil alone. 
And it's estimated that around 40% to half of all people alive today are only alive and kept alive because of these fertilizers, which themselves only exist because of the Haber-Bosch process. Now, it's possible to look at that population boom and say, okay, fine, that's neat, but a higher population is not inherently a good thing. That means Haber is also responsible for the overconsumption issues that we are now facing worldwide, which is true in a way, but it's also not that simple. At the time when this process was being perfected, we were climbing our way as a species to the top of a huge population bomb. Due to bad luck and timing, the world population was on the verge of essentially doubling in the early 20th century, and the world's food resources would not have been able to sustain all those people. Meaning, the population was going to grow regardless. But at the time, we were on the verge of having billions of starving people worldwide. We would have experienced that boom either way, but because of this invention, those people who were born were able to survive. This invention saved the human race from a global famine that likely would have killed more than it left alive, and would have reshaped the world in ways that would be difficult to predict. It would be such a large shift, but it almost certainly would have stifled technological, moral, and societal innovation, as that tends to be what happens when everyone has to drop everything that they're doing and focus for a while on just finding enough to eat so that they don't die. As a result of this invention and the subsequent upscaling of it, Haber and Bosch are considered to be two of maybe five people in history who have saved over a billion lives apiece. Their names celebrated alongside Carl Landsteiner, the man who discovered blood groups, and Richard Lewison, the man who developed blood transfusions. And it places them above Edward Jenner, Norman Borlaug, and Lynn Enslow, the developers of the smallpox vaccine, the agricultural green revolution, and the chlorination of water, respectively. All of whom are estimated to have saved hundreds of millions of lives apiece, but whose contributions, in terms of the raw number of lives saved, still pale in comparison to the estimated 2.7 billion lives that Haber and Bosch are estimated to have saved. All of which makes for a pretty good story. It's wild to think that still today, we are only able to sustain this many people on the planet without turning every single inch of exposed earth into farmland because someone figured out how to fix atmospheric nitrogen to hydrogen. But that's not the end of the story. Because even though Haber received a Nobel Peace Prize for his work in 1919, and even though he contributed to several other realms of science as well, he proposed a method for evaluating the lattice energy of an ionic solid, for instance, which is far less generally practical for most of us, but it's no doubt useful if you study crystalline solids. But in addition to all that, he is also considered to be the father of chemical warfare. And that is not a moniker that he achieved accidentally, as a random byproduct of something else he was doing. He wasn't off saving lives when he happened to drop the wrong vial in the wrong vat, leading to the unintentional discovery of chemical weapons. Fritz Haber was downright gleeful about the beginning of World War I, and he enthusiastically signed up early to develop weapons for the German cause. 
In doing so, shrugging off the ban on such weapons under the Hague Convention of 1907, which Germany has signed, Haber developed chlorine gas, which killed over 10,000 Allied troops the first time it was used in France in 1915. His wife committed suicide three weeks later, and it's thought that she did so because of all the deaths that were being caused by her husband's invention. But he kept right on developing new and increasingly horrible chemical weapons regardless. Much of what the Nazis did during World War II, testing their weapons on Jews and Roma and other minorities that they considered to be impure, Haber did during World War I, though his test subjects, his victims, were primarily captured Russian soldiers. Haber's process also allowed the German military to continue making explosives during the latter half of World War I, after the Allies had cut off their supply of saltpeter or potassium nitrate, a naturally occurring substance refined from guano that is a key ingredient in the production of gunpowder. The Allies kept the Germans from accessing their usual supply of the substance, which should have led to the Germans essentially running out of bombs and ammunition. But Haber's process allowed them to make their own synthetic replacement, which is thought to have allowed them to extend the war several years longer than it would have otherwise. Imagine that. World War I may have ended years sooner than it did had this guy not committed himself to the Kaiser's conquest. After World War I, Haber continued his work on chemical weapons, in some cases for Germany and in other cases for emerging and established authoritarian governments around Europe, some of the governments that became an issue during World War II, but when the Nazis began to take power in Germany, Haber's Jewish ancestry became a problem for those in charge. Despite his military contributions to the state, he and his family were kicked out of the country, and they were allowed to flee rather than being killed outright because of those contributions. He died not long after that, reportedly from discouragement and ill health that resulted from all of the fleeing and traveling post-exile. The story of Fritz Haber is a fascinating one. He and his work have been so immensely important to the history of the human species. What would Earth be like if half the population had died back in the early 1900s, and we found ourselves unable to break through the population ceiling imposed upon us by the natural processes of the planet? How many more rainforests would we have had to cut down or burn down to make room for cropland? And how many currently occupied land masses would have been rendered uninhabitable by the nutrient-drained soil and constant state of war that would almost certainly be taking place over scarce food resources? It's difficult to imagine. But although this man was a hero in many respects, having saved billions of lives from starvation, he was also kind of a movie-like villain. He even wore those little round spectacles that German period piece villains often wear in the movies. This guy gleefully killed people by the hundreds by experimenting on them with deadly gases before happily handing those gases over to a military that used them to kill over a million people during World War I. And upgraded versions of those same gases were used to kill many times more than that during World War II. It's difficult to assess 
just how many more lives may have been lost as a consequence of those additional, perhaps unnecessary, years that were added on to the end of World War I due to Haber's innovations. And it's difficult to assess just how many lives may have been saved due to all the secondary consequences of half the world's population not starving to death in the early 20th century. A century that saw huge increases in population that were paralleled by huge increases in technology and general living standards worldwide. Would we have all the modern medical marvels that we enjoy today? Had we less than half as many minds to work on them? It's difficult to say for certain, but probably not. What I want to talk about today is the dichotomous nature of human beings. How a person can be both monster and hero, angel and devil, and how the way we talk about these figures, both historical and contemporary, is shaped by many different variables, both internal and external. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I want to start with today comes from The Economist, and it's entitled The Leaders of the Two Koreas Meet Again. This piece is kind of just an outline of what's been happening on the Korean Peninsula and in the politics surrounding those happenings over the past few weeks. Namely, there was a summit, a meeting between North and South Korean leaders on May 26th, 2018, which followed another such meeting that took place a month previous, on April 26th. Both meetings being notable because they happened in such rapid succession and because they represent only the third and fourth times that the leaders from the two Koreas have ever met each other in person in this way. These meetings were part of a larger diplomatic movement that involved Kim Jong-un, the authoritarian leader of North Korea, meeting with Xi Jinping, the also authoritarian, but in a more publicly acceptable way, leader of China, and an ongoing will-he-won't-he storyline involving U.S. President Donald Trump, who has hinted and then backtracked and then hinted again that he will meet with Kim Jong-un and negotiate peace on the Korean Peninsula, officially ending a war that started in 1950 and that never technically ended. There was an armistice that broke up the country into North and South in 1953, but the conflict is still officially ongoing. This is a vitally important story, and it's made all the more interesting because of the diplomatic posturing that's been taking place, and because of the status and ostensible goals of the various characters involved. Xi Jinping recently managed to leverage his pieces on the board to pass a mandate that essentially frees him up to be leader of China for life, something the country has not had since Mao Zedong back in the post-World War II era. Kim Jong-un has successfully kept his hermit state afloat by engaging in all kinds of illegal activity, and he managed to keep his people under control while also spending a huge amount of the state's finite resources on a crash nuclear weapons program that seems to have borne fruit in the shape of a small but still quite dangerous nuclear weapons arsenal. Moon Jae-in, the president of South Korea, was elected in 2017, after his predecessor was ousted and sentenced to 24 years in prison for abuse of power and coercion, 
after a bizarre series of scandals that included a Rasputin-like character who seemed to have insinuated herself with the former president, and who was, despite being unelected, making policy decisions and committing illegal acts with the powers of the presidency. Needless to say, Moon has a lot to prove on behalf of the government after that sort of scandal. And then there's Donald Trump, who has been steeped in his own torrent of scandals since even before he was elected, and who seems to be looking for an international diplomacy success story to mount on his wall to prove his administration's capabilities. He has not managed to do much in that department yet, but he would no doubt love to be able to claim a peacemaking success in a part of the world that has proven to be immune to such efforts previously. Each of these characters has a whole lot to gain from successfully ending the conflict between the Koreas for good. And though there's also a decent amount to gain from drawing it out for a long while and using the possibility of peace to keep anticipation high, even if peace is not terribly likely, many experts think this sequence of events has the potential to lead to something new and lasting. Though most of those same experts are also quick to remind us that this kind of thing has happened before, and has always, thus far at least, led to nothing. The next step in this process involves getting formal talks going, which would include the U.S. because of our role in the Korean War, that is still technically ongoing, and it's that next step that's been up in the air this last week. A meeting date of June 12th, 2018, was proposed, and backtracked on, and then proposed again, as of the day I'm recording this, the meeting, which it has been said will take place in Singapore, seems to be on, but there's still a chance it will be completely polled, reassigned to another day, held in another location, or otherwise obfuscated in the meantime. This story, like so many stories these days, has the potential to change shape quickly. Now, this whole situation is of vital importance for countless reasons, but what I want to focus on today is another aspect of this story that pulls us back to the meta scale a bit and away from the international diplomatic scale. And this focus stems from a question that I asked myself a few months ago when the current episode of this political show was starting, when Trump had begun claiming that he would make peace in Korea rather than threatening the leader of North Korea and calling him names on Twitter, as had been his strategy up until that point. When that became the new story, the new position of the administration, and when small moves here and there began to shift things in that direction in a practical way, I asked myself this, would a successful peacemaking effort on the Korean Peninsula change my opinion of Donald Trump? For context, I do not like Donald Trump. Everything I know about him as a person, as a professional, as a politician, runs counter to what I believe to be moral and right. There are many levels to my disdain for the man, so that's the starting point for this thought experiment. But if he actually did manage to make something like this happen, allowing that he would obviously only be one part of the larger whole, as there are many powerful interests involved in this space. But if he and his administration could even just prime the way for this thing to roll on through, could make it happen by not keeping it from happening, would that change my assessment of him in any way? I'd like to think it would. I'd like to think that I could give credit where credit is due, and that I could acknowledge that while I still think 
that he is a garbage human being. I could acknowledge that he is a garbage human being who played a role in diffusing one of the most volatile and dangerous conflicts in the world today. A nuclear weapon-empowered North Korea is simply terrifying. North Korea lacking nuclear weapons is also terrifying. Because of its traditional weapons stockpiles, its massive military, its adjacency to some of the most populated regions in the world, and its sense of ethics and goals that lay orthogonal to those of most of the rest of the world. But give that same government nuclear weapons, and it's kind of like giving a gun to a desperate drunk guy who's engaged in a fistfight that he cannot hope to win. It escalates the situation by making vast scales of destruction simpler and quicker and more thinkable. You could kill someone with your fists, but a bullet is just a trigger pull away. And you can kill someone with regular bombs, but dropping just one big one is a whole lot more logistically doable. It makes complex killing simple. So if this guy, for whom I have nothing but disdain, managed to rein that situation in, to lessen the threat under which a significant chunk of the global human population exists today, even if just by being there and nodding his head and not messing it up because he can, would I think better of him? This is a trickier question than it may initially seem to be. And it's a question that many of us have had to ask ourselves, to varying degrees and for many different reasons, lately. Because of our species' evolving sense of morality and our evolving technological capabilities when it comes to raising awareness and doing something about that morality. The Me Too movement, for instance, was born out of a wave of women bravely standing up and making clear that sexual harassment and abuse is not a rare thing that seldom happens. It's incredibly common, and in many cases, powerful people, mostly men, but not exclusively, have used their power over others, mostly women, but not exclusively, to abuse them in some way and to then get away with that abuse. And this wave of stories of making it clear that we all know someone, and almost certainly multiple someones, who have suffered as a consequence of these abuses. Those stories have allowed us to have a conversation about this collection of interconnected issues. It's a difficult conversation to have, and it's one that we are still having and will likely continue to have for a very long time. But it's also one that has already borne fruit. It has outed a lot of serial abusers, and at times it has even leveled something that looks a little bit like justice. As more accusations have come forward about powerful, famous men in particular, it's become kind of a dark joke on Twitter that if you see your favorite older male actor or musician or other famous figure trending, Chances are, he either died or has been accused of sexual abuse of some kind. And it's going to be a hugely disappointing day either way. This process of coming to terms with the darker side of people we previously considered to be good isn't new. We've always known or caught hints of our hero's flaws. Not all of those flaws were as obvious or dramatic as Haber's, the guy I talked about in the intro. In some cases, it's a brilliant artist who also abuses her employees. Or it's our favorite politician who repeatedly cheated on his wife and lied about it. Or it's a famous author who intentionally used their position to keep people of color from being published on their imprint. I'd like to talk about some of the ways that we might look at these sorts of stories. How we receive and take in this kind of information, how we process it, 
how that influences our beliefs and behaviors, and what we might do to see such situations more clearly, and possibly even make better, more defensible decisions, or hold more morally aligned opinions moving forward. Some of these concepts may be familiar to you, might be things that you work into your mental math already, and some might be new and might seem a little disconcerting, might make you a little uncomfortable to even think about. I would argue that that is the perfect state of mind to be in when assessing information of this kind. If we only consider ideas that we're totally comfortable with, we'd be unlikely to ever grow, but we'd also be more likely to choose the simplest, most comfortable answers to our questions, which in turn means that we become super easy to manipulate and we become unlikely to ever see the big picture of anything since that big picture will almost always include details that are unpleasant to look at and think about. To get started, let's address the cognitive dissonance we sometimes feel when we find out one of our heroes is actually a monster. Or perhaps not horrible, but they're not as perfect as we held them up to be in our minds. A very normal first response to information of this kind in regards to someone we like, someone we care about or respect, is doubt and dismay. And often, we'll attempt to subconsciously assuage that dismay by amplifying the doubt. This could not possibly be true. This person is awesome. This person is my favorite. This person is worthy of respect, so I refuse to believe whatever negative thing you're saying about them. This response is an extension of what's called a fundamental attribution error, which is sometimes also described as attribution bias. This bias is most commonly seen when we attribute malice to the actions of someone else, but make excuses for the same action when it is us that's doing it. Us being we as individuals, and in some cases, other people that we consider to be part of our tribe, who are one of us. So if you're cut off in traffic by someone in another car, you may get angry and upset, certain that the person in that car is a bad driver is reckless and careless. Perhaps they're a jerk who's trying to upset you, to insult you in some way. If you cut someone else off, however, you are less likely to assess the situation in that same way. You're not a bad driver. You're a great driver who's getting in front of someone who is driving too slowly. You're the king of the road, and it would not even cross your mind that the person you just cut off is likely thinking all those negative things that you've thought about other drivers previously about you. Now, this bias carries over to those we consider to be our people from a distance, including celebrities, politicians, and any other public figure that we see as sharing our beliefs, our situation, our background, anyone we appreciate despite not knowing them personally. As a result, when our favorite actor is outed as a serial abuser, or the politician we voted for in the last election is accused of being a serial philanderer, we're more likely to attribute positive, excusable rationales than we would be if the same accusations and evidence were applied to someone we either didn't like or about whom we felt nothing but neutral feelings. Of course, there's a good chance that the perception we have of that public personality is flawed to begin with. We may consider them to be part of our tribe, but they may, in reality, hold very different beliefs, live in very different ways, and come from a very different background from what we assume, or what is alluded to by their public-facing persona. This is partly the consequence of good branding, which shapes these types of people 
into the person they need to seem to be to get votes or to become beloved by the movie-viewing audience. But beyond that intentional reshaping of their image, all public presentations of a person are by necessity flattened versions of that person. There's no way you can communicate enough information to convey the complexity that a single human being encompasses. The more of their work and their ideas we're exposed to, the more roundness they seem to take on. So public personalities who get a lot of airtime or who are published a whole lot can take on larger-than-life statures, seeming to be not just real, but ultra-real. But in actuality, what you're seeing is a polished and decorated version of that person, primped and primed for TV, or their role in a film, or their press junket for a newly released novel. We are seeing more angles of the same made-for-public-consumption caricature of who they are in real life. We only ever see the portions of these people that are appropriate for the relationship we have with them. And that relationship can come to feel very real, very close, when in reality, it's actually non-existent. Such is the power of repeat exposure, well-groomed personas, and always-on interactive media channels. Finding out that there is something beyond these caricatures. Learning that this person we loved, we respected, has depths that we didn't know about. And that some of those depths may be horrible. That can be devastating. Not only does it throw the tenuousness of those relationships in our faces, not only does it make us feel like fools marching to the drumbeat of a fraudster, not only does it make us feel that a cherished relationship was built on lies, it also triggers a sense of surreality that maybe other aspects of our lives are built on the same sand foundations. That maybe we don't understand the world as much as we thought we did. And that perhaps the work we've been doing, the better version of ourselves we've been pursuing, is not such a great goal after all. Who's to say? Maybe we don't know what we're doing after all. A sense of sunk costs can kick in at this moment as well. The idea that we've invested so much in a particular direction, in respecting and following a particular person, that maybe we should just keep going. Even if what everyone's saying about them is true, you've gone this far, you've spent this much time and effort moving in this direction, you've committed yourself to them and their work for this long. Maybe it's better to just keep going down a maybe non-ideal path rather than pulling away and starting anew, having wasted all of that time and energy on something that proved to be fake. And that thought process can result in even more doubt and despair. One way to avoid this spiral is to try to avoid lionizing anyone and to instead respect people as mortals, as round human beings, as people who are perhaps doing some cool, respectable stuff, but who are not themselves godlike or perfect. Even someone who seems to make the best music ever or who saves millions of people's lives should ideally be held up as someone who has done great things rather than someone who is the absolute ideal human being who can do no wrong. This can be a surprisingly tricky position to hold, though, because it requires that we continue to make determinations and judgments about all of these people's future actions as well as what they're doing today. It's far easier to set up someone else as your guru than it is to take responsibility for your own life and your own happiness, your own sense of truth and reality. But you're more likely to avoid that crushing feeling of self-doubt and sadness that emerges when your guru turns out to be a fraudster 
And when your saints turn out to be mere mortals, if you approach things in this way, if you can accept that all of these people doing impressive things are just as flawed as the rest of us, though perhaps in different ways, then you avoid building that type of wobbly tower that's just begging to be knocked over by the wrecking ball of reality. It's also more likely, if you allow people to be people, no matter how impressive they might be, and choose to venerate ideas and words and actions instead, that you'll be able to pivot your perspective to see the reality of things, rather than seeing through the lens of attribution bias or sunk costs. Again, this approach piles loads more responsibility on you, but it also means that your thinking, your subjective experience and interpretation of facts are less likely to be hijacked by cleverly built personas and well-funded brands. Let's change course a little and talk for a moment about morality. Our moral standards have changed dramatically over the centuries. What once was normal is now incredibly abnormal, and what once was unthinkable is today super common and thinkable. And this applies to everything from the way we dress, to the way we build relationships, to the way we work, to the way we produce and consume things. The gulf between the cultural environment in the United States in the 1700s and the United States in 2018 is vast, and there are similar gulfs of varying sizes between all time periods, all cultures, and all individuals within the same culture and time period. This difference in what we consider to be moral in different places and at different times can mess with our sense of rightness and wrongness, and even good and evil. For instance, Imagine a historical figure who helped free humanity from the tyranny of monarchies and helped catalyze the age of democracy. For many people who have grown up within democratic systems of government, such figures are considered to be pretty solid moral characters. They did great things. They changed the world for the better. If you dig deeper into their lives, though, maybe you discover, oh wait, they owned slaves. But then at that time in history, at that location, Lots of people owned slaves. I mean, maybe it's not ideal, but maybe it's understandable, viewed through the lens of that time period. And how about this person who made some important discovery that saved millions of lives? Yes, they also abused their wife, but hey, lots of people did back then. It was just kind of a normal thing. It would be kind of shocking and unusual if he didn't, actually. So again, maybe it's not a big deal or not as big a deal as it would be had he lived today. Maybe we should just focus entirely on the saving millions of people part. This perspective is understandable in the sense that people of different ages, different time periods and locations and cultures, they all come from different backgrounds. And yes, there have been periods in history, let's look at ancient Greece for instance, where the leaders of the age did a lot of things that are generally considered to be very positive things even today. But these people also did a lot of other things that we today consider to be quite horrible. The super common practice of making essentially everyone that you defeat in battle and their whole family into slaves, for instance. That was a Greek thing. This practice was common around the world during that time period. And yes, even the vaunted, philosophically-minded Greeks partook 
followed by their spiritual successors, the Pax Romana-era Romans, who were crazy elevated in their thinking about certain things, and who arguably changed a whole lot of things for the better, but who, at the same time, still owned slaves. And even if those slaves could earn their way out of slavery under the Romans, which was different from most other cultures at the time, that does not change the fact that it was people owning other people under threat of death. If you had been born a young white person in Virginia in the 18th century, the idea that slavery was okay and natural and correct, that anything else was wrong and against God's wishes, that would have been what you grew up with. You would have been taught all of that from the day that you were born, and everything that you learned from day one would have reinforced that perspective in your mind. We all like to think that if we were born in another age, we would have been the rare exception, the rare person who saw things clearly. Clear, in this case, defined as seeing the world through modern eyes. But we wouldn't. We would have been born back then. We would not have lived in the world of 2018, a world where, thankfully, slavery is far less common than it used to be, and where mainstream opinion, in most places at least, is that slavery was an abomination that never should have existed, ideally, but never should have survived as long as it did, minimum. Had you been born a white person in 18th century Virginia, the idea that slavery was wrong would have been the morally repugnant concept and would almost certainly have been beaten out of you by life and social norms. And so that in mind, recognizing that people who lived in the past held different ideas than we do about what is morally correct and morally abhorrent, it becomes a little easier to justify away the slave-owning realities of many of our historical heroes here in the U.S., despite slavery being such a horrible stain on our country's history. But is that the right approach to take when having these types of conversations? I mean, it's fair, in a way, I think. One mental model that I find to be useful in situations like this one is imagining how someone living 200 years in the future would feel about me. A person living today, a person who's doing the best that he can, trying to be a good person, but almost certainly not a good person by the standards of 200 years in the future. If morality continues to evolve, as I hope it does, who knows what will become a common way of thinking two centuries from now? Who knows which of the many things we do today, without really questioning it, because that's how we were raised, will be construed as being equivalent to slavery in the year 2218. Now, thinking in those terms that we can't possibly be expected to understand the direction of moral evolution in a given society over that type of time frame, it becomes a little easier to understand why it may be unfair to judge folks who lived a few hundred years ago through the lens of modern society. But at the same time, we don't want to erase these mistakes these misconceptions, honestly held as they may have been, we don't want to cover them up and pretend it didn't happen. It's possible, for instance, to remember George Washington by saying he helped set up a radical rationalist nation at a time when such a thing was frowned upon by all the tyrants of the world with their massive armies and economies, while at the same time acknowledging that it's pretty messed up that George Washington thought that owning other human beings no matter how common a practice it was at the time, was an okay moral thing to do. 
we can recognize that slavery was a common practice in his time without letting him and everyone else from that period and culture off the hook. As I mentioned before, it's possible to celebrate what a person does and says, their contributions and ideas, without turning them into gods or mythical heroes. We need not worship George Washington to acknowledge how much we may have benefited from some of the things that he did over the course of his life. And we needn't call him out as an absolute 100% villain to acknowledge that much of what he did, due to his environment and no doubt also his individual traits, are not things that we today consider to be moral. It's possible, in other words, to understand someone and their actions without condoning them. It's possible to say, I get why he would have thought that way, but it's still not cool. That is a legitimate and well-informed position to take. And it becomes a whole lot easier if we do not turn these people into cartoonish deities that must be perfect in order for us to respect some of the things that they did and learn from them. Here's another question that I think is worth asking. How horrible does a person have to be before we remember them for their flaws instead of their positive characteristics? And contra that, how beneficent does a person need to be to wash away their horribleness so that we remember them as saviors rather than slave owners, child abusers, or just vicious, petty human beings? Where do we draw the line? If someone saves 50 million lives but never takes their supermarket trolley, their shopping cart, back to the trolley holder, just leaves it there in the middle of the parking lot like a jerk. If that's the contrast, do we remember their small misdeed, the shopping cart thing? Or are we more likely to remember them for their great work, the saving of 50 million people's lives? Probably the great work. The trolley habit most likely will not even be mentioned in their biography. On the other hand, if someone kills 50 million people, as Stalin is thought to have done during his reign over the Soviet Union, will we forgive them that horribleness because they helped an old lady cross the street once? Probably not. But at what point do these two opposing dynamics converge? How do we determine where on the good-bad spectrum they flip and somebody becomes a hero rather than a villain or vice versa? What if someone kills just one person? brutally with their bare hands, but also because of a discovery they make, let's say, saves 50 million lives. The math changes a little bit, I think. Even though on balance, saving all of those lives dramatically overshadows the bad, the killing of even a single person in a very personal and horrible way, I think most of us would still have trouble overlooking something like murder. Well, what if they saved all of those lives and they were responsible for a death, but it wasn't an up-close-and-personal thing. They hired someone to kill one of their enemies. They hired a hitman to do it. How do we feel about them now? They saved 50 million lives, remember, and this is just one life taken, and not even with their own hands. They paid someone else to do it. What if they saved 50 million people, and to do so, they gave the order to assassinate one random person? And that assassination was undertaken by the military, which they commanded. What if that person, who was ordered killed, was not random at all? This person would have been responsible for the killing of all those people had they not been knocked off. Or what if that person who was killed was totally innocent, but still, by some odd twist of fate, 
They had to be killed to save those 50 million people. And what if they had to be killed by the person in charge of that military, but with their bare hands, rather than them being able to order someone else to do it? What if the 50 million people were saved, and the one person who was killed was accidentally killed as collateral damage? They just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. How do we feel about the person who ordered that action, who is in some ways responsible for that death? What if only 10 million people were saved and 1,000 people were killed by that person? What if 1 million people instead were saved? Instead of 50 million, just 1 million and 50,000 had to die in order for that 1 million to be saved. What if 1 million people were saved and 1 million people had to die to make that happen? The point here is that the metrics we tend to use when determining the relative goodness or badness of a person are often very superficial and generally have more to do with knee-jerk emotional responses and deeply held cultural beliefs and biases about what is good and what is bad than any real deeper rationales or outcome assessments. It's arguably still just as bad to order or hire someone to kill someone else you're kind of just pulling the trigger, which then causes someone else to pull the trigger. So if you believe that killing someone with a gun is killing someone, it's difficult to argue that this is different in any fundamental way, except that the person doing the ordering is one more step removed. And yet we generally assign different moral value to killing when it's done by someone else, compared to when we do it because we've been ordered to, or when we are doing it in the name of a higher cause, be it country or faith or some other ideology. Our wires are very crossed on this issue. And though none of these assessments is inherently right or wrong, we can believe whatever we like, it's almost always going to be better to understand what lay beneath our own thinking in these matters, on all issues of this kind, because that means that we are less likely to accept the first answer that our quick twitch lizard brains give us. We're more likely to think and behave rationally and completely when we can better quantify these sort of things. Difficult as that can be, we are more likely to consider the whole context, or as much of the context as we can see, at least, before passing judgment. And that's only possible if we take the time to figure out what externalities might be at play, what yardsticks we're using to measure good and bad, and what biases we might harbor that could be warping our perception. If we take the time to consider the whole context, our judgment is more likely to be morally defensible rather than just emotionally satisfying. Another perspective to consider here is that many people who do truly horrible things actually have the best of intentions. And by their own standards, if not yours or the world's, they're doing good work. Something I try to remind myself regularly is that it is unlikely anyone wakes up each morning thinking, how am I going to be an evil villain today? No, they think they are doing God's work. Hitler woke up every morning satisfied that he was improving the world, helping the human race, a very specific model for the human race, of course, but nonetheless, by his standards of what was right and wrong, he was at the top of his game. By that same token, Mother Teresa, who is considered by many to be a far better person than Hitler, also thought that she was doing God's work, and in a quite literal way. But although many of her efforts were noble and good by most people's standards, she also fought hard against the empowerment of women. 
against the availability of painkillers that could help the poor and suffering to suffer less, and any advanced healthcare for pretty much everyone. She believed that suffering was a requirement if you wanted to be one with God. And she often said that she was more concerned with making people Catholic than helping them in these temporal forms while they are alive. Poverty was a good and noble thing to her. So anything that would raise people out of poverty or remove women from what she considered to be their good and proper role as essentially just baby makers, anything like that was to be opposed. By her moral standards, it was vital that people got baptized, but not so necessary that they ever stopped suffering or even lived a very long time. To her, the cleansing of the soul was the important part. So despite the massive difference between these two historical figures, we have to acknowledge with both that they were doing what they considered to be proper and moral, even while many people who are not them, who have different beliefs, different views of the world, would be horrified by some of their actions and the rationales behind them. And we could say the same of every single person who has ever lived, because every one of us has done something at some point in our lives that someone else who exists or will exist could look at and say, oh, wow, yeah, that's messed up. This is clearly not the action of a good person. And from their perspective, they would be right. And from our perspective, they would be wrong. The point being that if we want to be fully cognizant of how we think about people, we have to acknowledge that part of why we think about our heroes the way that we do is that their idea of good and bad just happens to align with our own. Or at the very least, the public persona that they wear implies that their sense of good and bad aligns with ours. And through the lens of time, culture, or just different ideas about morality, it's easy to understand why someone looking at this person from another angle might come to a different conclusion about who they are or who they were. If all you see is Mother Teresa's humanistic deeds, you'll likely have a different opinion of the woman than someone who has seen the bigger picture and who has had the opportunity to work that perspective into their assessment of her larger body of work. On top of these other concerns, it's worth remembering, anytime we consume information of this kind, which economic models underpin those systems. Modern journalism does a lot of things right, in my opinion, but it's still built in such a way that exposing the dark underbelly of a well-known personality will almost always trump less salacious news that is arguably more vital. And although we often lump quote-unquote the media together, it's also important to remember that there are more credible sources and less credible sources. And that's true of every single topic, and it will be different sources based on the topic. It's possible for accusations to, on further inspection, be revealed as nothing. And it's possible for legit accusations to get buried because someone at the paper had more financial incentive not to print them. We got to see both sides of this throughout the recent Harvey Weinstein scandal, where for years this man's bad behavior was protected. His accusers counterattacked by his allies because he was a powerful man in a powerful position, able to influence what was published and what wasn't. He held all the cards in that respect. More recently, though, public sentiment has shifted, and more publications saw value, were incentivized, to report on this story, which hadn't really changed. Instead, it was the culture surrounding the story that had changed. 
And although there's obvious journalistic merit to what was reported, it also turned out to be very good business for those publications that were able to get new scoops and break news related to this larger scandal. All of which is to say it pays to be aware of the informational context in which this type of news is distributed. We are better off when we understand our own internal information warping tendencies and capabilities. But to get the most out of that understanding, we also need to watch for external warping, the bias that is inherent in everything to greater and lesser degrees, and the potential influence that such bias has on what we read, watch, and listen to. As for the question that I asked when I kicked off this discussion, the conclusion I've come to, keeping all of this in mind, is that I do believe I will be capable of giving credit where credit is due when it comes to Korea. If Trump can help make peace in what's long been a volatile area, making not just the region but the whole world a safer place as a consequence, I think he deserves kudos for that. Now, those are kudos that exist within the larger context of all the other things that he's done, many of which I consider to be reprehensible. He doesn't get off the hook because he did one big good thing, but it will be included in the mix. It'll complicate the mix a bit, but it will still be there. And a complicated mixture of a human being is what we all are to varying degrees. It's not as satisfying looking at people this way and having to acknowledge that things are complex and complicated. There's a part of me that wants the world to be filled with cleanly delineated heroes and villains and good and evil, but the world doesn't work that way. The world is a series of grays. It's not black and white. And as long as that continues to be the case, I personally, at least, am willing to put in the effort to wade through that complexity. The book that I'd like to recommend today is actually the second book in a series. The first book was called Planetfall, and the series is called the Planetfall series. But this second book I actually liked a little bit better than the first. It's called After Atlas, and it's by an author named Emma Newman. And part of why I really enjoyed this book, the first book is about basically a ship full of cultists who followed a prophet of sorts from Earth to build this ship and to go off to this far-off planet that she received word would contain alien knowledge that also kind of points at a concept of God. This second book takes place in the same universe, but it takes place on Earth about 40 years after that cultist spaceship leaves orbit, and the main character is related to one of the characters who left on that ship. And part of why I love it so much is that it demonstrates a really fleshed-out potential futuristic society, which isn't crazy futuristic, but it's far enough along that a great deal has changed. Class divisions have become more emphasized, and these kind of mega-corporations have taken over for today's governments. They've become the better system of organization, by some standards at least. But because of the mass overpopulation and because of the kind of lack of available jobs in some ways, because of automation and artificial intelligences, people are sometimes born into debt to these corporations, and then they spend their lives essentially working off that debt. 
So any training they receive, any education, or if they just find themselves wrong place, wrong time, they can go into essentially a lifelong debt to a mega corporation and then spend their lives working that off. And the main character is a detective who is trying to solve a great big mystery who also happens to be owned in this way, a debt slave to a corporation. So all of that, that main storyline also takes place within a world where everything is printable. You can print food, but the main character is kind of a backward-looking character who prefers to cook his own food and to get real vegetables, which is very strange in this time period. And it also takes place in a space where everybody is connected all the time to kind of an intangible, augmented reality-based internet which I think plays out pretty well, especially the way that they interact with their pseudo-artificial intelligence personal assistant. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, you may enjoy After Atlas by Emma Newman. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find out more about my upcoming tour, including tour dates and where you can get tickets at becomingtour.com. And do feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I am at Colin is my name pretty much everywhere. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright. I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.